Our Heavenly Father, we uh, continue to worship you by attending to your word, uh, to the preached word. Um, and we ask, Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would clear away distractions, that you would help us to focus mind and heart on what it is that you uh, wish to say to us. And I have ideas of what that might be, but it could be that your spirit is operating in different ways in, in, in some people's hearts and minds today to show them other things that are not highlighted, that I don't highlight in the scripture Whatever it is, we want you to be our teacher. Um, And so teach us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Oh, that was a mistake. 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 263. Page 263. Give you some context while you're turning. David is on the run. Um... He's hiding from King Saul, who is hunting him. Uh, David has been a successful commander, a successful general, if you will, for King Saul. But he's been too successful, and Saul has become quite jealous of David and means to kill him. King Saul fears for his throne. He believes that David is uh, after it, and legitimately so. Not that David is after it, but God has promised through Samuel that David will, in fact, replace Saul is king. God has rejected Saul. David also has with him at this time 600 men. So he's on the run with 600 men, and these 600 men are uh, pretty much loyal to David. So we're going to start reading through the passage, and I'll make comments as we go along, and then we'll draw out some application. Beginning with verse 1, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn, mourn for him, and they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. A man of my own had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his doings. So Samuel's dead. David and his men are in the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea on the run, hiding from Saul. And we meet Nabal and Abigail, who are quite wealthy. Uh, It's likely that um, Nabal is quite a powerful man in this area, and his wife Abigail would be a prominent individual as well. Abigail, we're told, is intelligent and beautiful, and Nabal seems to be just the opposite. (laughs) He's harsh and he's evil. The word Nabal means fool. The word Nabal means fool, um, which is interesting. And if that is really what he was called, then we're going to see that he lives up to his name. Uh, They lived in Maon and had sheep in Carmel. Uh, Maon and Carmel were a mile apart, and they were south of Hebron. So those of you who know your Bible, Matts, you know it's further south in Israel and uh, to the the, uh, west of the uh, Dead Sea. One other thing is that right now it's sheep shearing time. Uh, It's like harvest time for a farmer. Uh, All the goods that you've been laboring for for so long are now available, and the money is flowing. It's a busy time. It's a prosperous time. It's a joyful time. There's lots of work, and there's lots of celebrating. Beginning with verse 4, go to verses 4 to 8. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent Ten young men instructing them, go up to Carmel, uh, Carmel, and when you get, come to Nabal, greet him in my name. 
and say this, Long life to you and peace to you, to your family and to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. When your sheep were with us, we did not harass them, and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time uh, they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give, give whatever you can afford to your servants and to your son David. So David has a host of men to feed on a regular basis. And his message to Nabal, uh, Nabal has three parts. Uh, there's a greeting, a reminder, and a request. The greeting is long life, uh, wishes him long life and peace, which curiously, uh, neither one of those wishes will be fulfilled. Um, there is a reminder then that when David and all his men were together with Nabal's shepherds and the sheep, that they uh, served as protection for all of his sheep and shepherds uh, against marauders, and not one of his sheep came up missing, and then he makes a request. Whatever you can spare for my men uh, would be much appreciated. This is not a modern-day protection racket, as some have suspected. What he is asking of this wealthy man is not far-fetched, given the law of Moses, given uh, the, the hospitality practices of that day. His request is quite legitimate. So let's see how Nabal responds. Verse 9, David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. Nabal asked them, who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't know where they are from. David's men retraced their steps. When they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to his men, all of you put on your swords. So David and all his men put on their swords. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So Nabal not only refuses the request, but he also insults David in the process. He implies that David is a nobody and a runaway slave, poking at him because of his situation with Saul, that he's run away from the king, but the king is trying to kill him. Ignoring the fact that David has done much to liberate Israel at this time from all of the Philistines, so when his men report what Nabal said, David's response is immediate, swords, swords. Now, in the Holman Christian standard, the word sword only pops up two times, but in the original language, it's actually there three times. So I'll show you the ESV. Uh, sorry? Whoa. All right. The ESV um, uh, says, And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his Sword. There's an emphasis there. We, it's pretty clear what David's intent is, I think, right? Uh, it's not hugs and kisses. Um, his intention seems fairly clear. So verse 14 then. Uh, one of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he yelled at them. The men treated us well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed, and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us both day and night, the entire time we were herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you must do, because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. So one of Nabal's uh, servants informs uh, Abigail about the situation. 
And as he tells the story, it, it seems pretty clear that he thinks that Nabal is in the wrong. It seems pretty clear that he, he himself does not have a very high opinion of Nabal. Uh, he's a worthless fool. Literally, the text says he's a son of Belial who won't listen to anybody. So now we're going to re- hear about what Abigail does. This is a longer passage. We'll read verses 18 to 31. Um, Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her male servants, Go ahead of me. I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she rode the donkey down a mountain pass, hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his men survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and fell with her face to the ground in front of David. She fell at his feet and said, The guilt is mine, my lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My lord should pay no attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name is Nabal, and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my lord, as surely as the lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who want trouble for my Lord be like Nabal. Accept this gift your servant has brought to my Lord and let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. When someone pursues you and attempts to take your life, my Lord's life will be tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living. However, he will fling away your enemies like... Uh, enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Abigail responds with wisdom. Abigail is someone who can do smart things really quickly. Um, after, the, after her servant's report, she responds quickly to uh, gather a mass of food together. And it's a feast day. It's a feast day, so a lot of food's probably already prepared. She gathers it together, um, and she uh, sends it on ahead. She doesn't tell, and she doesn't tell Nabal about this. She's on her way to David, and David is on his way with violent revenge on his mind. This is quite the scene, because we have two parties coming together to converge. And on the one hand... We have Abigail with uh, some servants and some donkeys laden with food. And on the other hand, we have David, who is filled with vengeance, with anger and vengeance, and 400 armed men coming this way. In a flash, Abigail is off her donkey, face down before David, calling him my Lord and referring to herself as your servant. Humility, um, trying to diffuse it. She's a model of uh, uh, Proverbs 15:1. you know, a soft answer turns away wrath. She's assuming the blame for herself, even though it isn't technically her fault. After all, what can you expect from a man named Nabal, named Fool? He's not worth your effort. If only your men had seen me instead of my husband, 
this offense wouldn't have taken place. But things are put right now. Look, here's, here's food. Please forgive this unjustifiable offense against you. I brought you plenty for your shepherds, and thank you for the security that you offered us over the past year. Did you catch what else Abigail does besides apologizing? She brings God into the picture. She reminds David that the Lord is watching out for him, that the Lord has promised to protect David, that the Lord has promised to provide for David and to deal with David's enemies and to make David king and to establish his kingdom. She points out that even now, at this moment, the Lord is watching over him. Because why? Because he is restraining David from something that will mar his conscience in the future. She is restraining David from an improper response to an offense against him. The Lord even now is intervening to foil David's attempt uh, at avenging himself instead of leaving it to the Lord. For instance, uh, verse 26, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself. End of verse 28, Throughout your life may evil not be found in you, she says to David. Verse 30, When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for you because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. Abigail's words here are masterful, and they are filled with wisdom, and it's because of her that the whole situation turns around. And the high emotion and the tension that are in place at this moment just highlights the wisdom that flows from her heart all the more, wisdom given to her by the Lord. Well, look at David's response in verses 32 uh, through 35. Then David said to Abigail, Praise to the Lord God of Israel, who sent you to me to meet me today. Your discernment is blessed, and you are blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging, yourself, and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any men left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard what you said and have granted your request. So David relents. Abigail's wise words go straight to his heart. He repents of his plans for vengeance, and he gives credit to the Lord and to Abigail for stopping him from this grave sin of violent revenge. Well, then we read verses 36 to 38. Then Abigail went to uh, Nabal, and there he was in his house holding a feast fit for a king. Nabal was in a good mood and very drunk, so she didn't say anything to him until morning light. In the morning, when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. Then he had a seizure and became paralyzed. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. So Nabal hasn't a clue. He's feasting. Uh, totally ignorant of the fact that there is an army very near his doorstep. Uh, And his wife doesn't tell him what happens until the next day. Um, And he's totally ignorant of the fact until she tells him of the deliverance that she has wrought on behalf of the household. Uh, Then he learns of it, and then he dies. The Lord strikes him. Someone has pointed out that when we first meet Nabal in chapter 25, we aren't even told his name at first. All we're told about is his wealth. That's the first thing we're told about, is his wealth. Later we learn his name. At the end of the chapter, 
He's celebrating his wealth. He is a man who has become defined by his wealth. And that's no doubt uh, that his wealth has become his God. It's what he lives for, and that's no doubt why his uh, name is Nabal, or that's why he, at least how he lives up to his name. His wealth is his God and has made him a worthless fool, according to verse 17, and a stupid man, according to verse 25. And in the end, it, his wealth doesn't save him. It doesn't save him. On the, on the day when he's enjoying his prosperity at the most, that's when his life is required of him. Nabal reminds me of two things. It reminds me of a parable Jesus told, and it reminds me of a psalm that David ironically wrote. The parable is about the rich man who had so much wealth he decided to tear down his small barns and build bigger barns so that he could house all his wealth. And the parable goes like this. The man says, then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is, Jesus says, with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Nabal is just like that. He's stored up treasure for himself and he is not rich for God, rich toward God. And at the moment when his wealth is the most, his life is required of him. His soul is required of him. He dies and he leaves behind all of his earthly success. The psalm it makes me think of is Psalm chapter 14. First verse is this. The fool says in his heart, God does not exist. They are corrupt. They do evil deeds. If you were to look at the Hebrew Bible, if you could read Hebrew and look at the Hebrew Bible and you could see that word fool, it's Nabal. It's the word Nabal. It's the same word that is the name of Abigail's husband. And certainly Nabal did not live as if God existed. Certainly he was corrupt and his deeds were evil, according to chapter 25, verse 3. Now, I don't know that David actually had Nabal in mind when he was writing this particular psalm. But maybe he did. I don't know. And then I was looking at the word, the, the name Nabal, and I was, because uh, I play letter games, uh, you know what Nabal spelled backward is? Laban. Yeah, so some of you know Laban from the Bible, and it's kind of interesting to compare the two. This is not legitimate exegesis, by the way. This is not le legitimate biblical interpretation. But it was interesting to me to think about Laban and Nabal, who both brought trouble upon themselves because of their love of money. But that's just a, you know, it's just a coincidence of English. Um, anyway, on then to verses 39 to 42. Uh, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. And David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. When David's servants came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to bring you to him as a wife. She stood up then bowed her face to the ground and said, Here I am, your servant, to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. And Abigail got up quickly, and with her five female servants accompanying her, rode on the donkey following David's messengers, and so she became his wife. Uh, you know, just a reminder that uh, their customs were a little different than our customs. Um, but in Nabal's death, uh, David recognizes the hand of the Lord. 
He praises God for his justice, for bringing Nabal's evil deed back on his own head. He also praises God there for restraining him uh, from taking justice into his own hands against Nabal. And then he marries Abigail. And we should read the last two verses too. Uh, 43 and 44, David also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and the two of them became his wives. But Saul gave his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, who was from Galim. So what can we say about this? Well, it's historical fact. It's historical fact, so it's reported in Scripture. The Scripture does not shy away from reporting things, even though it doesn't endorse everything that it reports. Uh, this is not This is not a... Uh, a biblical argument for bigamy or polygamy or polygyny or whatever you want to call it. Um, God never mandates polygamy in the Bible. Uh, he allowed it in the ancient Israel, but he didn't endorse it. Um, God set the pattern for marriage in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus endorsed it, endorsed that pattern in Matthew chapter 19. And the pattern for marriage is very simply one man and one woman. Not one man and multiple wives, not one woman and multiple husbands, not two men, not two women, one man and one woman, that's it. But this sermon isn't about marriage, so we're going to move on then to the lessons. That's the story. What are some lessons that we can draw from this story about Abigail, Nabal, and David? Well, I want to highlight four things. One is a lesson from what Abigail says. Um... And that is, the first one is very obvious from this passage, do not seek revenge. Leave the matter in the Lord's hands. Whatever the matter is, however you may be offended, however you may be criticized unjustly, however you may be wronged unjustly, revenge is not ours to take as believers. A verse I memorized a long time ago is Romans 12:19. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. The matter of vengeance, the matter of avenging, it belongs to the Lord. We have that urge that is so natural to our old self, to our sinful nature, that urge to hit back. If someone insults you, you want to insult them back right away. If someone makes you look bad in front of others, you want to do the same. Or even worse, if someone says something to you in a critical tone, you immediately match their tone, right? Duels used to be fought to avenge one's honor. I demand satisfaction. Uh, it's near the core of our sinful nature. It feels so natural and it's so quick. David no sooner hears what his servants have to say, Nabal said. And as soon as he hears it, wow, he's quick. Swords, <laughs> you know, he yells for swords. It's like a switch is flipped. You perceive a slight or an insult, and instantly you're in revenge mode. Someone offends you, and you feel you have to even the score. But the Lord expects something very different. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. We're to leave the situation in God's hands. That's what we're to do. It is mine to avenge, says the Lord. In other words, our revenge is up to the Lord. Uh, he will handle it, or our vengeance is up to the Lord. He will handle it as he sees best, and he always, he always sees best. 
So what are you to do then when you're slighted, when you're offended, when you're insulted, when you're unjustly criticized? What are you to do, for instance, when a relative in front of the whole family subtly mocks you for one reason or another? Well, another verse would be 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. When someone here at the church, for instance, one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, says something that is cutting to you, something that is hurtful, you are not to match uh, their harshness or their unkindness. Uh, You are to respond with graciousness and kindness. Pursue what is good for that person. Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, I've I've given examples of smaller things, but this holds true for matters of big things too. Remember what Jesus said when he was on the cross? You remember how he called down curses on all the people who were crucifying him? That's not what he did, is it? No. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Remember Stephen, how he reacted to the people who were putting him to death? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. With regards to this too, you also be aware of the fact that our culture preaches just the opposite. Our Bible tells us don't take revenge, but our culture preaches revenge. I mean, uh, if you watch any amount of TV or movies, a lot of those are revenge. The, the, the premise is revenge. And they suck us in because I, I'm there rooting for the revenge too as I'm watching these shows. But be, be mindful of the fact that that's what our, that's what our culture preaches. You know, one of my favorite one of my favorite stories is the Count of Monte Cristo. I just read it recently again, and it's it's 1,200 pages of a man plotting and executing revenge. <laughs> so that says something about me, probably that I really like that story. Um, but you know, just recognize that that's what the that's what the culture preaches. But that's not how we are to respond as Christians. Proverbs 20:22 20, says, "Don't say I will avenge this evil. Wait on the Lord." And then a lesson about what God does. God at times restrains you from evil. God at times restrains you from evil. David was bent on revenge, which is evil, but he did not follow through because God restrained him. Verse 26 says, It is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed. Verse 33, Praise the Lord God who sent you to me today, and you kept me from participating in bloodshed. Verse 34 as surely as the Lord God lives who prevented me from harming you. Verse 39, praise the Lord who championed my cause and restrained me from doing evil. Kept, kept, prevented, restrained. This is what God did for David. He restrained him from the sin on which he was bent. Nabal was a foolish man and David's guard was down and David's intent was also foolish. At that moment, David was a Nabal. But God had already in place a keen servant and a wise woman who restrained him from that sin. How many times has God foiled you and rescued you from sin? How many times has he restrained you from foolishness? Does he restrain us from all sin? I wish. (laughs) He does not. But in his mercy toward us, he does restrain us from some sin. Or, probably more likely, much sin. Sometimes we don't see it, but sometimes, like David, we do recognize 
the hand of God. David recognizes the hand of God in the intervention of Abigail. One writer says, What loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness? What mercy sends frustration to our purposes? And then third, a lesson from what uh, Abigail does. Uh, And this is the lesson. Let us speak God back into one another's lives. Let us speak God back into one another's lives when we need it. Listen to this description from Eugene Peterson. David is rampaging, murder in his eyes, and Abigail blocks his path kneeling before him. David has been insulted and is out to avenge the insult with 400 men worked up into a frenzy. Abigail, solitary and beautiful, kneels in the path, stopping David in his tracks. At this moment, David is full of himself and empty of God. Abigail recovers God for David. I'll tell you something uh, interesting, or that I find interesting, is how chapters 25, how chapter 25 is, I can't talk today, how chapter 25 falls between chapters 24 and 26. Because, because of the events in those chapters. Um, These three chapters are sort of tied together by the same theme. In each chapter, David has the opportunity for revenge. David has the opportunity for revenge. In chapter 24, it's revenge against Saul. He could kill, he could take out the man who is seeking to kill him. And the same thing happens in chapter 26, another instance where Saul falls into his hands and he could take revenge on Saul. But he doesn't. In both those chapters, he refuses to take revenge. He has the opportunity. Saul was the man who had separated him from family, who had him him on the run. David had sacrificed so much for Saul. (laughs) He had won him so many victories, and Saul had rewarded him with wanted posters all over Israel. But here in chapter 25, but in those two chapters, David refuses. He refuses to, to exact revenge. But now here in chapter 25 is Nabal. Here we have Nabal, who has stiffed him a paycheck. And here David immediately is yelling for swords. Now I know, I've talked with some of you, and I know a few of you, some of you who have been stiffed paychecks before, who haven't gotten paid for projects that you've done before, and you haven't had near the response that David had. (laughs) In fact, I've been more upset on your behalf than you've been as you've related this story to me. And yet David here is yelling for swords. It's a reminder that sometimes we lose sight of God, that sometimes our old nature is quickly provoked, that sometimes we slip back into our old selves. David is twice called a man after God's own heart, once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, but he wasn't always, at every moment, a man after God's own heart. How quickly sometimes the halo can slip. Um... But what does Abigail do? She reminds David of God. She reminds him of the Lord's promises. She reminds him of the Lord's protection. She reminds him of the Lord's will. She reminds him of the Lord's word. She reminds him that he belongs to the Lord and the Lord will take care of him. And he responds. The light returns to his eyes because he is a man after God's own heart. And when he is rebuked in a gentle, gracious way, when he is confronted with the truth that he knows and that he's temporarily forgot, he responds to it. Almost as quickly as the insult triggers the old nature, the reminder of the Lord 
stimulates his practiced faith. And this is part of what we do for each other as believers. This is part of what we do for each other as a local church. We remind one another of God. Pete was reading earlier from Hebrews 10, where we are to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24. Or Hebrews 3.13, we encourage each other so that sin doesn't creep in and harden us. This is part of our ministry to fellow Christians. We help one another recover God in our lives when the sinful nature rears up. In three consecutive chapters, David has three opportunities for revenge. In none of those chapters does he actually follow through on that sin. Two times because of his conscience and his practice, his conscience and his practice faith. But one time, it's because someone else spoke of God to him. Let us speak God into one another's lives. We witness to unbelievers, but we also witness uh, to one another. And the final lesson then is a lesson about Jesus. And that's this. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the perfect king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. David would eventually become king. And there is much that is commendable about David. Um, He is a man after God's own heart. He demonstrates radical trust in the Lord at so many times. He is a man of great worship. But he's not perfect. In a heartbeat, he's bent on revenge. And, of course, we know what happens later on in his life, too. The servant of God... Godly as he often is, cannot be trusted with God's eternal kingdom. There is only one servant who can be trusted with God's kingdom, and that is David's most famous descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus always did the Father's will. Not once did he stray or slip or fall. David here is in the wilderness. Chapter 25, verse 1 tells us that he's in the wilderness, and he's being tested here. David's being tested here in the wilderness. Jesus was also in the wilderness, was he not? And he was also tested. David often fares well in his wilderness tests. He's in the wilderness for a long time. But sometimes he falls flat. Jesus never fell flat. He never sinned. If he had sinned even just once, even if he had allowed his temper to flare just once on behalf of his own dignity without reference to the Father, that's it. There'd be no atonement. There would be no forgiveness of our sins. There would be no deliverance from sin and from hell. But he didn't. He endured considerable opposition from sinful men and yet did so without ever once sinning. He was tried. He was tried by religious criticism. He was tried by uh, self-righteous Pharisees. He was tried by deceptive demons. He was tried by self-absorbed crowds. He was tried by dense disciples. But there was never a flicker of selfishness. He was tested in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He faced the horror of the wrath of God in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross, and he never flinched away from what he should do. He didn't lash out. He didn't have a flight response. He didn't have a fright response. He did exactly what he was supposed to do always. The head of the kingdom of God is Christ, and he is the perfect head, the perfect king. The occasional sins of David, the man after God's own heart, remind us of the sinlessness and perfect righteousness of Jesus, the son of David, our Savior, our Lord, and our King. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the 
who is perfect, who is sinless, who indeed is the Son of God, become human, the divine, uh, uh, the divine mediator. Um, and we are, we are grateful uh, for what has been done through him. Our Lord Jesus, we pray to you and, and, and are so grateful for what it is you have done on our behalf. Um, and we ask that we would, you, you modeled this kind of stuff. David modeled this stuff very imperf- imperfectly. Uh, you modeled it perfectly. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to shape us and mold us uh, to be more like you, that your Holy Spirit would fill us. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who doesn't know you, who doesn't have a relationship with you, you've provided that salvation. You've provided that deliverance from sin. We pray, Lord, that they would consider um, consider salvation and that they would put their faith and trust in you. To you be all the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.